Well, welcome back to Thanks Good Talk, Hogan Lovell's shortcast on everything happening in Lobbyland with your host, Ivan Zapian and me, Mark Urian. Thanks, Mark. So I'm very excited, number one, to actually have a name for uh, this podcast slash shortcast. We went for four or five episodes without a name, so it's exciting to have a name. I'm really excited about our topic, healthcare, and our guest today. Yeah, I'm very excited, as I know you are, Ivan, to have our bipartisan power team, Anna Weinstein and Sybil Rohrenbeck, here uh, to tell us what's going to happen in healthcare in 2022. But before we get into that, why don't we ask our guests to just briefly introduce themselves and tell us how they got to be where they got to be. Why don't we start with Anna? Thanks, Ivan. So uh, great to join the podcast today. I am um, uh, started at Hogan Levels about a year ago and have spent about 25 years in the healthcare policy space in DC. Well, started out on the Hill uh, as an intern for Senator Leahy and then up at the Harvard School of Public Health and then back to DC at the end of the Clinton administration and have worked um, in a variety of different capacities um, at other firms and trade associations in DC before joining the, the team at Hogan. And I'm Sybil Rohrenbeck, and um, I actually had a, a much earlier life as a disc jockey, which will make me great on this podcast, I'm hoping. I actually had a radio show in high school, WSPS, one and a half hours of ska straight, which was just very well loved in rural New Hampshire. Um, I then went on and, um, you know, really got involved in healthcare. When I first started working on the Hill, I was at the House Republican Conference with Congressman J.C. Watts, former Oklahoma Sooner, wonderful, wonderful man and great legislator, worked for him also in his public affairs firm and then went back to the Hill and worked for the Honorable Walter B. Jones um, for a number of years, also on the House side. Um, His charge at that time was leading a lot of the home health and community pharmacy issues, and that's how I was first introduced to healthcare. then lobbied for uh, the American Medical Association for a number of years, and then I've been working with clients um, after leaving the AMA. I'm really pleased to join the team here and and work with all of you. So thanks for the opportunity to chat with you today. So Ivan, is it okay with you if I uh, ask the the first question of of this august uh, team here? Yeah, no, for for sure. I, I, you know, I, one of the things that I think before you get to your question mark that I that I think is most exciting about having a bipartisan team is that you know it's it's sort of an underrated um, you know sort of strategic approach to Washington D.C. because I think people sort of like constantly look at the papers and go like oh the Republicans are in charge we need Republicans if the Democrats are in charge we need you know Democrats but in fact you always need both. And what elections have taught us recently is that it just constantly changes all the time. So the one constant thing you have is that you have to approach this bipartisan in a bipartisan fashion. So very excited to have a bipartisan take on all these issues. Well, and we need one, too, because we've got President Biden and the House and Senate majorities have, you know, big ambitions for health care, but they don't really have much of a majority. So we really need to know what the art of the possible is with you know working within the constraints that, um, particularly in the Senate, um, with with nearly an even Senate. So as as the person who knows probably the least about healthcare, and I literally do not know how to spell it. Uh, I don't know if it's one word or two. Let me ask you guys, what 
to, you know, with, with build back better on life support, maybe at best, and knowing that we now have a Supreme Court uh, nomination uh, confirmation uh, to get through, what parts of the, of the healthcare aspects of Build Back Better are still in play in your mind? And, you know, what is must do? What is, you know, possibly uh, able to be accomplished? My take is that it's going to be very difficult for the Biden administration, for, for Democrats in both chambers to completely give up on Build Back Better. We're all painfully aware of the challenges that exist, but you know, and a lot depends on the interest and willingness of Senators Manchin and Cinema to put pen to paper and try to resurrect pieces that that they're on board with. I think, you know, completely jettisoning the entire um, exercise, I think, is you know, is risky for Democrats. Um, so it's certainly. I mean, there are all kinds of wild cards here. We've got Russia. We've got. I mean, the Supreme Court stuff, which I think. You know, I don't think that alone is by any stretch a reason we can't do pieces of Build Back Better, but we've got the China competitiveness bill. We've got an appropriations process. We have, you know, COVID and lots of things that are, you know, also going to be on the the docket. But I think there, you know, certainly will is an interest among many to, to try to pull something together around Build Back Better. And I think the pieces that are most likely to survive are the you know the drug pricing piece that could pay for other healthcare measures or could fund other priorities in the bill. Um, and I think so. I, I do think that there is a continued interest in doing something around drug pricing. Maybe I'll get into more detail on the specifics later. But I think the Affordable Care Act premium tax credit for 10 years, extending that tax credit another 10 years is another top priority that I think is very doable. I think there's, you know, there's a couple of other, there's home and community-based services funding that's in there. There's some public health measures that I think uh, can pass the mansion test. And I, you know, others I think are a little, a little less clear. So, I mean, my take is that there's going to be, it may not be successful, but I do think that there will be some effort given to trying to, to resurrect um, pieces of that that are not as controversial as, as others. And, and that sort of, that litmus test is, is up to Manchin. And I think there's been some speculation that, that, that progressives are not going to get on board with that, but it's hard for me to believe that they won't be able to be convinced that getting something done is is really critical for, especially given the way the polls look for the midterms. Thank you, Anna. What say you, Sybil? I think in addition to those items, we're also seeing some sort of standalone efforts really emerge. So, you know, the health committee leadership put out their own pandemic preparedness bill. We're seeing new calls from providers and other industries related to COVID funding. I think we're at an inflection point on a lot of the COVID pieces. We're being, you know, employer, large employers are being asked to shoulder the cost um, of testing. We have new requirements related to free masks, free tests for the entire U.S. population. But also because of the nature of the pandemic, I mean, to me at least, it's not clear whether we're going to enter a, a new bad phase or we're coming out of one. And additional funding there is another thing that always kind of is hanging in the balance and. We're starting to see some push and pull related to that. Um, next week, Senate Finance has a hearing 
in one of their subcommittees scheduled to talk about the solvency of the trust fund. And so we're starting to sort of get the response from policymakers of there will be an end at some point to limitless funding coming out of the U.S. Congress related to COVID and other things. This year, too, we will see the expiration of a number of really important um, value-based care provisions, which were part of the Affordable Care Act and also part of the Medicare Access and CHIP Act. There are two, two key statutory provisions which will expire there. So that's a place where we are expect to see some significant movement. Um, telehealth and other digital health technologies, a lot of their waivers and clinicians' abilities to use those technologies during the pandemic um, are really tied to the public health emergency and COVID. And once that is permitted to expire, we could see, and we have already begun to see, significant efforts to get those put in permanent statute. So there's a lot of other type of issues which were not necessarily part of BBB, but are still clear priorities for this year for healthcare stakeholders. So following up on that, and speaking of tele- you know, telemedicine, you know, I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of innovation that occurred that was already sort of in the pipeline that sort of got moved quicker because of COVID. Um, you know, um, and, and for me, I think like telemedicine is just something that's probably like 10 years too late. Like, you know, who, who didn't think of that before, right? Like it, it seems like it's very efficient. It's very good. Um, and I think it'll, I, I, I would vote to make it permanent, but are, are there some innovations that are occurring because of COVID that are just going to change the landscape of the way in which our healthcare system works moving forward? I'd be curious on both of your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think on the digital health, we also see, and and we do a lot of work around healthcare AI, you know, a deployment of technology to to meet the shortages. I mean, as in any other industries, we have significant worker shortages. And so where technology can kind of take that place, that's, we've seen a lot of interest in development there. I think for telehealth, the concern is not, you know, that people kind of thought to do it when we had COVID. It's that there's a statutory preclusion for payment under Medicare, and that still is sitting there in statute. It's just waived during the PHE. So, you know, testing and many other types of therapeutics as well, and the use of monoclonal antibodies and infusions, a lot of these issues and and modalities and services that have been going on for many years were sort of heightened and more of a spotlight put on during COVID. And, you know, I think it can be an opportunity to see what works and what doesn't work. Many, many analysts have looked at the data in terms of utilization of these various types of technologies and services. And the 2020 data is so out of whack that you know, many of the actuarial accountants and others have said, we can't really look at that 2020 or even 2021 data and glean any kind of good conclusions about what works best and what doesn't. And that's a refrain we're now beginning to hear from lawmakers who realize that greater use of many of these things would be extremely expensive and drain the trust fund, which is set to expire in 2026 even more quickly. I would just add, you know, I think this another big agenda item to cover this year is the reauthorization of the various Federal Food and Drug Administration user fee acts. And so in that context, while there's always a desire to keep that a very clean reauthorization, it's normally the, the vehicle for FDA and medical product approval related legislation. And I think there is a desire to look at things like accelerated approval and certainly learn, take some of the lessons learned from the speed with which vaccines were approved for emergency use and then, um, you know, fu- fully approved and the, uh, the process for 
approving the monoclonal antibodies and the, the tests, other diagnostics, I think there will be an effort to try to, I mean, I don't think we're going to necessarily be ready to do all of that this year in terms of, we haven't had much, we're still in the throes of the, hopefully the end of the pandemic, but you know, I think there will certainly be efforts undertaken to think about things that have been done during the public health emergency that can be extended beyond that. So, yeah, yeah. So it seems it seems to me that you know, for those of us like Mark and I that don't know that much about healthcare, there's a, just like a ton of stuff in the legislative space where that has to get done, right? Like it just programs expire and you have to reauthorize it. And it's inconceivable that they don't get reauthorized because they're just part of the healthcare system, right? So it it looks like there's just a bunch of the agenda that is just fueled by, you know, we got to reauthorize stuff, you know, reauthorize stuff. But in, in thinking, you know, in thinking about the elections next year and about possible change in sort of majority minority, you know, like how do you see what are the big changes do you see in priorities outside of the stuff that needs to get done in the healthcare space? Well, I would just say that I think that, you know, the Biden administration, the Department of Health and Human Services has a, you know, they're not getting a lot of press attention, but I think there is a lot of activity. You know, their Democrats uh, tend to be, you know, real health policy nerds um, and love to kind of dig in and, and think about ways to solve some of the really intractable problems around um, access to meaningful health health insurance and health care. And so I think we're going to see, you know, particularly if we don't get, uh, if, we, if we continue to be stymied on a Build Back Better modified bill um, in the drug pricing space, we'll see, I think, some activity from the uh, administration there. I think they're really going to be looking at ways to um, increase access, especially in states that haven't expanded Medicaid. There's just a very strong desire to try to make some meaningful changes in terms of health equity, um, preventing discrimination, mental health and substance abuse challenges. I know both the HELP and finance committees are looking at at those issues as well. Um, Regulations around implementing the Mental Health Parity um, and Addiction Equity Act and I think there's also an interest in streamlining and securing the exchange of health information from the administration. So I think normally you don't see a lot of legislative activity after mid-year in an election year. I think that, you know, as you mentioned, there are some must-do items. There's some end-of-year things that will need to, to be reauthorized. But I do think particularly moderate Democrats in these frontline uh, districts are eager to have to to find paths forward compromise work with their republican counterparts and get things done and i think that is going to continue right up until you know the last minute possible so i think they're they're going to be pressuring leadership to get done whatever is humanly possible in terms of legislation so they have some victories to go home and campaign on so i think that may change the traditional rubric where we don't have much legislating in the second half of the year. I think there are some, you know, opportunities for, there will be some interest in in continuing to work on things as possible. Before we close out, thank you, Anna. I want to ask a question about the the politics of, of some of this. You know, it wasn't that long ago when one of the most animating, politically animating 
things for Republicans was to shut down uh, Obamacare. And you know, I noticed that that in January, uh, this was we set record amounts of people to actually sign up for Obamacare. So my my question is: Is that still part of the Republican agenda? And if there is a takeover uh, in either body next year uh, in the House or Senate by Republicans, will that be part of the agenda, or is that? Is, has that gone by the by? So I, I think it's actually really interesting. We saw, um, I guess it was about two weeks ago, the Progressive Caucus sent a letter to the Biden administration criticizing um, one of HHS's models to lower healthcare costs and improve quality. And actually that program was authorized and created because of money from the Affordable Care Act. So we've seen a little bit of like things turning on their head. The Republicans at the same time have been talking more about some of those um, risk-based arrangements or value-based care models that would lower healthcare costs and improve quality. And in fact, on the House side, the Republican Healthy Futures Task Force has just released a request for information where they're talking about um, cost-saving and life-saving therapies and provider arrangements that should be worked on in, in this Congress and the next Congress. So I actually think that some of those issues that, you know, lower cost and ways to have more efficient care that were really ingrained in the Affordable Care Act are being picked up more by Republicans now um, and still worked on by some moderate Democrats, but we're seeing more willingness to embrace some of those things. At the same time, I think it's kind of interesting, you know, this concept that we would have a lot of bipartisan Healthcare work, I do think, with some of the retiring members or you know members that are leaving Congress, will have some of those priorities that could perhaps pop up and, and advance toward the end of the year. But for many Republicans, you know, many folks went back to co-sponsors that they'd had with bills, you know, when the Biden Biden presidency began, and their Democrat co you know counterparts wouldn't co-sponsor with them because they had supported um, the decertification of the election, not supported the certification. So. I'm not sure how easily some of those, you know, wounds will be mended, particularly on the Senate side and how much bipartisan work that is hasn't been longstanding and, and long going, like some of the health work will be able to advance really, you know, in time for, for the Democrats to get some wins before the midterm, essentially. I mean, and I think another challenge is going to be what, you know, what the impact of the Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade has um, on willingness to work across the aisle, but I, I don't. And so be it Democrats going it alone or with the help of some moderate Republicans, if any exist anymore or haven't or announced their retirement, I think that there, I still think that moderate Dems will be pushing to get some, some things done before the election, even if they have to go at it alone. And I think the other, the, the last thing we didn't really get touch on, I mean, I do think there's going to be, uh, and Republicans will totally be on board with this, strangely, even though they weren't under Trump, wanting to do some oversight of, uh, of COVID spending. There's a, you know, a new report out about, a uh, GAO report about concern about HHS and, you know, fraud and abuse. And, and so I think there's going to, we're going to have to buckle our seatbelts for some, for some oversight hearings too. Yeah, and I think the tech piece will be another piece where we'll see bipartisan agreement, um, AI space, digital health, remote patient monitoring. We're seeing widespread people coming together to try to get some things done there too. 
Terrific. Well, this has been a great conversation. It sounds like, you know, we have a potential very productive, you know, last year of this Congress. It sounds like there's some possible bipartisan agreement. It sounds like, um, you know, we've we've got a plan, but I've also been in Washington, D.C. for a long time. And I've actually like if you look at the year if you look at the year ahead, there's just so many things that can just toss this whole thing on its head, right? Like ranging from Ukraine to the Supreme Court to things, you know, another variant, you know, um, there's just so much in the news these days that you just sort of have to hold your breath and hope for the best. So that's going to be a very exciting time to be in the space that you guys are in. So we're lucky to have you guys. Thanks for being on the show. And uh, Mark, any parting words? No, great, great show. And uh, really, really happy that Anna and, and Sybil could join us today. Great colleagues. Thanks, guys. Right. And that's all. That's it. That's the life we've chosen for ourselves. It's Washington, D.C. Thanks. Thanks.